As you can see today, we're going to the Old Testament, uh, 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 7. Now, um, this is about leadership and the failure of leadership. It's about promises given to people by God and the failure of people to match up to all that God um, expected and asked. Um, now, 2 Chronicles is a book, and if you read it, you will, you will notice there's a lot of similarity with the books of Kings um, and, and Samuel, because a lot of the story is repeated in 2 Chronicles. But the Chronicles are written later by the priest. So they have a kind of a priestly overview of what went wrong. There's a commentary going on here uh, about uh, how the people behaved uh, rather than the more factual thing that we get in, in, in the Kings and, uh, and Samuel. So just at the beginning of 2 Chronicles, we have uh, the new king crowned, King Solomon. Uh, so that's where 2 Chronicles begins. 1 Chronicles ends with the death of King David. Uh, and then uh, 2 Chronicles takes up the story of, uh, of, of the new kingship under, under Solomon. And, and you'll notice right at the beginning of 2 Chronicles, Solomon's first encounter with God, he asks for wisdom. Okay, so of all the things he could ask for, he asks for wisdom, and that's a pretty good thing. And uh, thank you, Paul, for your prayers as well, because uh, you were saying that we should pray for wisdom for our leaders. And, and boy, don't we need it, rulers with wisdom. Um, uh, and then uh, as we go through two Chronicles, um, you find that God said, yes, I will give you wisdom, but as well as that, I'll give you lots of material blessings as well. I mean, Chron... Solomon could have prayed for, for riches, uh, but he didn't. He prayed, prayed for wisdom, but he got riches as well. It's a little bit like, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be given to you as well. So get your priorities right. Seek, seek wisdom. Um, and then the first thing that Solomon does is he starts to build the temple. Now, you'll recall that King David wanted to build the temple, but he wasn't allowed to. God said, no, it won't be for you, David. It'll be for your son to build the temple. And uh, there in chapters 2, he gets ready. And in chapter 3, he starts to build the temple. And uh, he furnishes it all out. And then in chapter 5, he brings the ark into the temple. The ark, which was like the portable a reminder of God's presence in the land that they carried around with them in the wilderness is now brought to its supposedly final resting place in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And so uh, the presence of God has come and uh, all the people gather and have a great celebration as the temple is completed and the presence of God is acknowledged. And then uh, in chapter 6 we have Solomon's prayer. And um, I'd just like to uh, talk a little bit about chapter 6 and the prayer that Solomon prayed, which will be relevant when we look at the passage that Margaret just uh, read to us, which is God's response to that prayer. Um, it's the completion of a great project, and uh, Solomon prays, and then the Lord speaks. So look at chapter 6. It, it, uh, it begins... Uh, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven and on earth. So here is Solomon who believes that God is, is actually the God of heaven and earth. 
He's not just a God that dwells up in the heavens, but actually he's on earth. And the, 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 the ark of the covenant in the middle of the temple is a kind of a tangible reminder that God is actually on earth, not just a God up in heaven. He then says, you kept your promises to David. Solomon reminds God of those promises that have been made to his father that he would always have a, a son on the throne. Uh, and, and, and David was a faithful king, apart from his one major blunder. But by and large, King David was a faithful king who trusted God. And uh, Solomon reminds God, as if God needed reminding, <laughs> of the promises that he made to his father and for his son and for future generations. Um, and then he, he kind of adds a codicil here. Uh, Please keep them for me too. You've kept them for my father David. Please keep your promises for me too. Hmm. He asked a question. Will God really dwell on earth with men? You know, the highest heavens can't contain God. And yet, will you dwell on earth with us? Wonderful prayer. Coming back to God's faithfulness. Now... This is the bit that gets me. Uh, in verse uh, 18, is it? Um, yeah, for, or verse 18, uh, or 22. Verse 22. When a man wrongs his neighbour and is required. And verse 24. When your people Israel have been defeated. Um, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain. Uh, when the famine or the plague comes, this is a strange prayer, isn't it? Because it, it's, uh, it's as if that, uh, that Solomon is, is anticipating that all these things will happen. It's not if. He's, he's actually praying when, when these things happen. Now, um, What's that going on? Why, why is Solomon so sure that these disasters, of course they did happen. And we know, of course, that they, looking back, uh, that the disasters came upon the people. Uh, why is that the case? Well, I think there is clearly here a connection between the sin of the people, which was pretty well inevitable, because we all sin, and the disasters that were to follow. That is the point that is being made here. That if the people sin, there are consequences for our sin. It's exactly the same as the story in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, God is with Adam in the garden and he says, uh, if you obey me, you will be blessed. You can eat all this fruit apart from that one tree and you'll be blessed if you obey me. But if you disobey me, you will be cursed. That's pretty good. I mean, when, when we brought up our, bring up our children, uh, we say, well, if, you, if, you, if you're good, if you obey us, uh, you do the right things, then that will be good. Something good will happen. If you do bad things, there will be consequences, some kind of punishment or some kind of uh, a consequence. That's fair, isn't it? Yeah? There are rules, and if you break the rules, these are the consequences. That's... that's Good parenting, really, from God. But notice that there's actually a connection in both stories between the sin of the people and ecological 
consequences. In, in the sin in Genesis 3, Adam's sin of, of, of disobeying by picking the wrong fruit has consequences that the ground will be hard to work, that the thistles and the thorns will come up and your labour will be hard. Um, uh, in, in this prayer of Solomon, he recognises that, that when people disobey, there are going to be problems in the land, there's going to be famines, there's going to be uh, things that happen which are, are, are negative. So I, I wanted to begin with Solomon's prayer uh, before we come on to see how the Lord responds. Because this is what it is. Solomon's poured out this prayer in front of all the people and then in chapter 7 we hear how God answers. So in a sense, the, the content of our prayers uh, affects the response we get from God. Is that right? I mean, we, do we... We pray for things. Uh, do we expect God to answer our prayer? If we, we hope so. And if we don't pray for something, well, we're not surprised when it doesn't happen, perhaps. Uh, it's a complicated matter, isn't it, prayer? We, God doesn't do what we tell him to. <laughs> but we do pour out our requests to him. And he might say, well, that's a very nice request, but actually I'm not going to grant that one. But, but, but there is a pouring out of the heart, and certainly Solomon, with all his failings, uh, was certainly a passionate man. And this prayer of Solomon is a prayer of passion, but a prayer of realism as well. So let's go on to uh, the passage which we started at today. 2 Chronicles 7 and uh, verse 11. When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace, he succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind. Um, The Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer. That's comforting to know, isn't it? That we actually, God will say, I've heard your prayer. And and I want you to know that God does hear your prayer, uh, even if sometimes you're saying, why doesn't God hear my prayer? But he does. But it is comforting when he, and he acknowledges and we get a confirmation that he has. And what he picks up straight away, he says, I have chosen this place. So, first of all, uh, we know that, that, that Stephen tells us in the New Testament that God doesn't need a temple to live in, does he? The highest heavens cannot contain him. He doesn't need a temple, but, he, but nevertheless, he says, I have chosen this place to dwell. And it's built on the very site of Mount Moriah, the place where uh, Abraham offered the sacrifice. Um, So there's a very significant place that it's been built. But God doesn't need a temple, but he has chosen to dwell there, to be a place where people can come and worship him. The second thing, when I shut up the heavens. (laughs) When I shut up the heavens. So right at the beginning, there's not an if... But when I shut up the heavens, uh, is this uh, a fate accompli or a sad inevitability that these things are going to happen? When God created Adam and Eve in the garden, was it inevitable that they would disobey God or just fate accompli? It's a complicated question, isn't it? But knowing human nature, it's, it's probably pretty inevitable, isn't it? that uh, we disobey 
And uh, so, although this, written, this book is written in retrospect by the priest, reflecting back, uh, certainly the things that Solomon was worried about in his prayer have been confirmed here by God. When I shut up the heavens, all these things will happen. Disasters will come. And they did. But then comes the if. After the when comes the if. When this happens, when these disasters come upon you, and he's looking, of course, to the time when Israel are taken away into exile, out of their land, the land that he's promised them. But he also says in that first bit, if, if you don't obey, I'll take the land from you. I mean, the land is a permanent promise, but with a caveat that if you don't obey, you will lose it. And of course we know that happened for many, many years and uh, only very recently have the people of Israel been back in that land. Um, But then he said, when this happens, if my people. I, I love that little phrase, my people. It's, it, it's a phrase which is a formula because whenever you read the phrase my people, you know that God is talking about his covenant promise. My people. He didn't make a covenant promise with any old people, but with, he says, my people. So when he looks at you, you are his people. You are the chosen people. And Peter says, a royal priesthood. Uh, My people. If my people. He's talking about the covenant which Solomon reminded him about with his father David. He said, yes, I made that promise with with your, with, uh, your father, but actually I've made a covenant with my people. And if my people. And he's talking about my people and not just the king. He's not just saying, if your king behaves well, then all will go well with you. But actually, it's if my people. People get the leaders they deserve. Well, is that true? Well, in a democracy, yes. If we believe that we have the democracy is a good thing... Um, There wasn't much democracy in the Bible. It's more of a theocracy. But nowadays we generally think that democracy is a good thing. We choose our leaders and the leaders reflect our people. It's worth reflecting on that, isn't it? When you listen to all the yah-booing going on in Parliament and think, oh, what these leaders? We voted for them and they're representing us. Actually, they're reflecting us too, aren't they? Are they not? Are they reflecting us in our attitudes? Uh, to a degree, yeah, yeah. We're probably not quite as bad as that. No. Uh, but, um, when I last spoke uh, on this passage, uh, I, I was. It was just after all of the um, expenses scandals in, the, in in Parliament, and you know, people claiming large amounts of money for their duck ponds and obscene things like that. Um, but really, you know, hey, you can get into a culture, can't you, where it all seems acceptable around you. You forget, actually, that actually God has determined what is right and what is wrong. It's not about the culture. Oh, I'll do it because my neighbour John does that. It's okay for me. Um, Actually, no, there are standards that God has set. The king has been called and anointed by God. But my people are called by my name. Who are we? We are the people of the living God. 
That's great, isn't it? What authority do we have? Because we're the people of the living God. My people, he says. And then there's the if. If my people will humble themselves. Humility is a great thing. Uh, Pride is actually the greatest sin. We might not think, we might think that murder and things are the greatest sin, but actually pride is the greatest sin because the greatest sin is to say I don't need God. If I'm, you know, so proud of myself and so confident in my own abilities that I don't need God, that's the opposite of humility. Humility means depending on God. Pride means saying I'm okay on my own. I remember our daughter when she was growing up saying, I can do it on my own. Yeah, which is fine. You want your children to grow up, but actually we need to remember that we are still children of God and we do depend on our Heavenly Father. So if my people will humble themselves, if they will pray and seek my face, there is an exhortation to pray. And we've been trying to focus more on prayer and the opportunity to pray before the service has been really well taken up. Um, there are people who are available to pray after the service. Who, who are they today, uh, Andrea? It's Anne, and, Anne and, and, and Lorna are, are ready to pray. So if anyone wants to pray, there are people who are particularly ready to pray but you could of course ask anyone to pray with you that's that's absolutely fine but if my people will pray and seek my face what does prayer mean does it mean actually a list of our wants our needs no actually prayer is about seeking God's face and God's face is obscured to most of us but actually we still seek him Uh, And even if it's only through a mist, we want to seek his face in prayer. Um, Prayerlessness is the worst practical form of atheism. Think about that. Prayerlessness is the worst practical form of atheism. If you say you're a believer, but you don't pray, you might as well be an atheist. Right? Now, remember, whenever you preach... You point the finger, you've got three fingers pointing back at you. Yeah, uh, and one thumb pointing up to God. So, um, this, I, I preach to myself. When I, when I don't pray, it's effectively saying, well, I don't need God. And that's effectively what the people of Israel had done. Even though this is a fantastic prayer from Solomon, effectively, as you will see... He abandoned his dependence upon God. If my people will humble themselves, pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. There's a call for repentance, a change of direction, turn from, which is what that, the Greek word metanoia means to turn and change direction. And now if you're in a captain of a big ship, you know that doesn't happen quickly. Uh, that actually you have to start turning it and, and gradually turn it into the right direction. Uh, and every time uh, we, uh, I have a time of a retreat or anything, there's always one verse that comes back to me. Uh, we're, this conference Karen and I are going on is of the form of retreat, and no doubt 
Lord, you will say to me, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. Isaiah 30. That's turn from our wicked ways. We, 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 I, I dare say that most of us here are not terribly wicked people on the scale of, you know, the Craig twins or something like that. But when we are drifting away from God's ways, then we've lost our way. You see, it's very easy to blame MPs for the, for the mess that we're in. It would have been very easy for the people of Israel to have blamed Solomon. Here is the man who asked for wisdom and yet married 700 wives and 300 concubines. He was the only person in history who could wake up in the morning, look his wife in the eye and say, Darling, you are truly one in a thousand. I mean, what is a man with wisdom doing marrying a thousand women? Especially as most of those women were foreign women who worshipped foreign gods. You know, I, 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 I would say one is enough. <laughs> one is definitely enough. Now, you, I didn't, it's not a loaded statement. Ample, plentiful, sufficient, all sufficient. You know, um, I have no desire for another 999. You'll be pleased to know, dear. Um, but, you see, she knows. She knows. Please pray for Karen. We, we, we get to our ruby wedding in, it's our ruby wedding in, in, in July, if, if we get there. Uh, um, but the very first statement in, in, the, in, the, um, in the Ten Commandments is this, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. That's at the heart of the commandments of God. I am the Lord your God. I'm all sufficient. You don't need lots of gods. You only need me. And I'm very pleased to say I only need Karen, which is great. But Solomon had, had broken that, hadn't he? And all these other wives that he chose, I mean, how did he remember all their names for a start? Um, they led him astray. They led him away from the one true God, even though he had a great start. Uh, and trouble came for him later. And with all of his successors, good and bad, some of them were, you know, on a scale of one to ten, some of them were, were about nine, but some of them were, were minus six, you know. Um, really bad kings. But then he says, if my people will turn from their wicked ways, if my people, my people, will repent and turn back to God, then, this is the result, I will hear from heaven. I think God doesn't always hear our prayers that we just voice verbally, does he? But he, he actually hears the cries of our heart, and he sees the actions that go with them. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if our particular weakness is uh, betting shops, and, um, uh, and we say, Lord, leave me not into temptation, or I'm going to the betting shop. Uh, in a sense, he doesn't really hear the true, true cry of our heart, does he? Mm. I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin. Isn't that a wonderful thing to hear? 
Your sins are forgiven. And you don't need a priest to tell you that. Actually, God's word says, if you come to him in repentance and faith, your sins are forgiven. All of it. That's at the heart of our Christian gospel. Don't forget, Solomon's pre-Christian. Jesus hadn't come for another uh, thousand years nearly uh, after this. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Now, isn't that wonderful? So that the the promise is not simply about forgiving our sins so that we can be like holy people and live on some kind of cloud uh, somewhere, um, but actually that the, the land will be healed. Restoration of the land, redemption... Is, is, is holistic. It's about the whole of creation. And we could go back to our passage in Colossians to see that that is part of God's plan. Not just to save souls, but actually to redeem creation and heal the land. And the people of Israel knew that when Cyrus finally, uh, the foreign king, finally allowed them to go back to Jerusalem they were to see a healing of the land and to see a restoration of the land. So the prayer aimed at heaven has been answered on earth. Which is not surprising. What does Jesus' prayer say? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. And therefore, uh, the prayer for restoration is about earth as well as heaven. So it matters how we live. It matters what we eat. It matters how we travel, how we use our resources. Um, And therefore, we need to change. Last week, we started to write a few things, what we might do practically uh, to be more responsible stewards of God's world and and perhaps you might like to carry on adding some things to there. But I'd like to show you a few pictures uh, of a place in Guatemala. Um, Do you want to put the first picture up? This is a church in uh, a town in Guatemala called Almalonga. Has anyone heard of it? Well, about 30 years ago, it was a town where all the jails were full where there was alcoholism that was rife, where it was a a very, very rough place, lots of poverty. Uh, But more recently, there has been a a quite remarkable evangelical um, revival in that town. I think there's about 20 evangelical churches now that have sprung up all over the town. But not only has there been uh, a revival in terms of spiritual... um, uh, the lives of people but actually they've found that the land is now producing such wonderful crops that that it has brought kind of prosperity to the area as well now be careful here Laurie is not preaching prosperity gospel do you remember Solomon prayed he asked for wisdom but actually God gave him the riches too Jesus says seek first the kingdom and all these things will be given to you. I'm not saying that if you pray that prayer, you will become rich. But just have a look at some of these pictures uh, of the, the people of Almalonga in Guatemala. Um, wonderful head coverings. 
Here they are in the market, and um, you can look this up on the internet. Some more, Steve. Just here they are with their, all their produce. There's some rather spectacular photographs in a minute. You know, just look at the size of those radishes. Um, it's, it is quite astonishing uh, the, the abundance of, of the harvests that are coming uh, in, in that place. It, read up about it. Um, now, there are different people who claim all sorts of reasons for it. You know, there are certain people who claim that it's their pre- their prayer method that has caused this. Actually, you know, I don't, I'm not going to buy that. But these people have turned to God in repentance, and actually, God has blessed their land. I think there's a message in there. I'm not saying that you can repeat their experience in every place, but actually, it seems to be what God is saying that if we, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek his face then I will hear from heaven I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land that's a promise of God is it not so let's uh, finish I'm going to just read Psalm 85 if you've got a Bible you might like to follow Psalm 85 one of the songs, Psalms of the sons of Korah You showed favour to your land, O Lord. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. Restore us again, O God our Saviour, and put away your displeasure towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what God the Lord will say. He promises peace to his people, his saints, but let them not return to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. Isn't that a wonderful psalm of praise and confidence in our faithful God?